So welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Mark Slaughter. Dr. Slaughter is professor and chair of the Department of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery at the University of Louisville. Dr. Slaughter, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So uh, I know you have a, a lot of expertise and a true passion in terms of cardiac issues. And I know you have an experience with ventricular assist devices, which is of interest to many people, both here at the McGowan Institute and elsewhere. And perhaps you could give us a little bit of an overview in terms of some of the principal issues in cardiac care that may lead to the use of ventricular assist device. Sure. As you know, currently, heart failure is one of the most common reasons to be admitted to the hospital. And a lot of this is the end result of really what's improved care for heart attacks and acute myocardial infarctions. And because of this, we're able to save many more people either through angioplasty or what would be considered high-risk coronary bypass surgery, and even people with advanced valvular heart disease. The problem with advancement in that area is it resulted in this huge population of heart failure patients. So currently in the United States, There's approximately 6 million people with heart failure. There's about 250,000 deaths per year, and about half a million patients diagnosed new each year. The problem then becomes is ultimately and historically, the treatment was heart transplantation. Unfortunately, although it continues to improve and work very well, we're still limited by the donor pool. So we only have about 2,200 patients a year of that very large and growing group of patients with heart failure who will ultimately be able to receive a transplant. Because of that, starting many, many years ago, people started looking for what really would be a mechanical solution. And what really started out as an interest in total artificial hearts has evolved into the left ventricular assist device because it turns out the majority of these patients actually will do quite well if you just support the circulation and unload the left ventricle. And then this in and of itself has really just opened the door to basic science research, translational research, engineering, and other alternative therapies. So the main groups of patients receiving left ventricular assist devices these days are really two groups. One is the bridge to transplant group. Part of the issue of the 2,200 patients that get a transplant, some of them get very sick before, and also we just have more people on the list. So about half the people to get to transplant will need some type of mechanical circulatory support. Although it's an important group, number-wise it's somewhat limited. The group that really is best served and where there's the greatest growth potential is what we call destination therapy, or those patients that actually have a contraindication to transplant but are dying of heart failure. Generally speaking, one of the more common causes would just be age. We rarely transplant people over 70 years of age. We will occasionally, but not very often. 
And then when you add in even some in their mid to late 60s with renal dysfunction, pulmonary hypertension, frailty, but this starts constituting a very large group where these mechanical devices can be very effective in improving survival as well as quality of life. So I know that there's been an evolution of different technologies in terms of these devices. I guess one of the principal differences is the question of the rotary pump versus the pulsatile system. Could you comment on the merits and questions relative to those two approaches? So when we first started out, the thought was that the device needed to mimic sort of the human heart, specifically in creating a pulse. And so because of that, most of them were volume displacement pumps, pulsatile pumps, some type of pusher plate then would sort of eject blood under pressure and create a pulse wave. The problem with that is it then sort of really restricts the ability to miniaturize, make it smaller, power requirements, venting, driveline, things like that. So although initially effective, it certainly had some limitations, particularly related to durability and reliability. Along the way, there was a group of people who believed that you could actually have a continuous flow pump where the propeller ultimately would have minimal bearings or no bearings, so that would immediately solve the durability problem. And because of that, it sort of translates over also into increased reliability And then it allows miniaturization if you don't actually have to displace a large volume of blood. So currently, almost all patients now are supported with continuous flow pumps. They come in two varieties, axial flow or centrifugal flow. The axial flow pumps do have blood contact bearings. Centrifugal flow pumps allow additional miniaturization and either just have a blood thrust bearing or no bearings at all, what we see with the HeartMate 3, where it's completely magnetically suspended. To date, and actually in prospective randomized trials against the pulsatile pumps, we saw a dramatic improvement in survival and a reduction also in adverse events, particularly related to uh, infection. So they've been a real boon, and it certainly has expanded the field as we know it today. So with a rotary pump, you don't have a pulse, I assume. Is that a problem? That's a great observation. And initially, most of these patients were essentially pulseless or nearly pulseless. We thought for many years that that would be okay. Because of the patient population we were treating and the advanced severity of illness, when patients would live a couple years, we were very happy with that. Now we have patients living five to 10 years. And what we've discovered is that if you truly have no pulse or minimal pulse for many years, it does result in some potential adverse effects. A lot of the peripheral vasculature becomes non-compliant. The endothelium quits acting normally. We see greater incidence of aortic insufficiency. So we see issues when there is a lack of a pulse. So one of the new areas of research is to see if we can't make these continuous flow pumps have a pulse. There are several ways to do it. The most common way is just by fluctuating the speed. Now, that also comes at some expense because it certainly requires more energy. 
because of the fluctuating power consumption, it makes it a little bit more difficult to develop the flow estimation, but it potentially has lots of long-term benefits, including just the washing of the pump. So in theory, there would be less hemolysis and thrombosis, preservation of the peripheral vasculature, preservation of renal function, and also hopefully a reduction of the aortic insufficiency that we see in some of these patients supported over a long period of time. So you may not need what we sort of think of as uh, pulse pressure of, say, 40 to 60 millimeters of mercury, but you probably do need a pulse pressure somewhere around 25 to 35 or 40, and a lot of good work is going on in this area. So my recollection is that these pumps are rotating at a fairly high speed. So uh, if you're going to modulate the rotational velocity, the period of modulation is, I presume, be fairly long. It is. As I was suggesting is it's not without some unintended consequences. So there are some theoretical advantages, which will yet to be proven, but it certainly does complicate to some degree the engineering the shear stress that's developed, its effect on blood elements, some of those things we don't know. I will say that the HeartMate 3, which is a completely magnetically levitated device, the impeller, it does have one of these what I'll really call pseudo-pulse systems built in. And in the early clinical experience, though, we've seen a significant reduction in hemolysis. So I think we still have to see what the overall effect will be but we are starting to see some very positive clinical effects from this change in the rotational speed. Very interesting. So can we talk a little bit about the survivability with VADs, without VADs, in terms of using a VAD pre-transplant? I think whether it's pre-transplant or even uh, destination therapy, the indication to get one meaning that you have to have class 4 heart failure and EF less than 25%, peak VO2 less than 14 or 50% are predicted. So whether it's BTT or DT, the entry criteria is essentially the same. And so because of that, what we see is consistent sort of in both arms of uh, therapy. At that point, the patient's only other choice is to stay on medical therapy, maybe inotropes, Certainly, you could be hospitalized in an ICU with invasive monitoring, a balloon pump, and lots of inotropes. But the idea is that once you sort of meet the indication for a left ventricular assist device, for those patients that get a device, they have a significant improvement in survival. Now, whether it's a BTT or DT, that difference varies a little bit partially just, once again, because of the age of the patient and some other underlying uh, comorbidities. But for bridge-to-transplant studies, the majority of time, the survival at one year is close to 90%. So the idea is inotrope-dependent patients have somewhere around a 50 to 75% mortality at one year. If you're in an ICU on multiple drips, things like that, you clearly have a 75 to, say, 80% mortality within uh, three to six months. So the idea is the survival improvement in BTT is dramatic, and similarly in destination therapy. So in the original trials when patients were randomized to medical therapy versus a device, 
It was about a 40% improvement in survival at one year. And then at two years, there was essentially no one alive on medical therapy. So even in destination therapy, we also see significant improvements in survival. Nowadays, what I tell people for destination therapy is they should anticipate a 50% five-year survival. Now, that doesn't mean at five years they all die. It just means we need to accumulate more patients to see beyond five years, does it stay at 50%, is there a recognizable decline? But the survival curve is very similar to what we see in transplant. And I think equally important, though, to survival is, in all studies that have been done, is there is also a significant improvement in quality of life. And this manifests itself in several ways. The first and the easiest to measure is just their ability to do a six-minute walk, their ability to go for walks, to do physical activity and enjoy life, and it significantly improves. If you actually look at peak VO2, it goes up and is not quite what you'd see with transplant, but very similar to what you achieve in a transplant. Psychosocial scores go up, and actually if you do neurocognitive testing, Actually, at three months, people actually become brighter as well. So not only do they survive longer, but they have a significant improvement in their quality of life as well. And I think that's probably the most important aspect. I've heard some of your colleagues comment that one of the issues in terms of the use of VADs is that the cardiac surgeon doesn't get to see the patient until they've deteriorated beyond the point of optimal use of a VAD. Would you agree with that observation? I think that's in general true. And I think, though, that, you know, our cardiology colleagues, they have some significant concerns, but I think also there's a lot of misinformation out there. So in the original trials, the people that got devices literally were nearly dead. And so many times the patients survived longer, better quality of life, but there weren't a lot of them living three to five years. And I think this tainted a lot of our cardiology colleagues because that's really what they remember most. Nowadays, if you get a patient that's not Intermax 1, Intermax now is how we sort of categorize patients by severity of illness. And one would be in an ICU with essentially multi-system organ failure and imminent death. But so someone just on inotropes, ambulatory on inotropes, things like that, Most of these patients, actually, their operative mortality is around 3%, so no different than coronary surgery. They will be discharged from the hospital in about 14 days. They're fully recovered in about six weeks. And in these patients, we tell them that they should look forward to about a 70% three-year survival and somewhere between 50 to 75% at five years. So I think a lot of the late referrals were just due to sort of initial impressions of patients that were referred and how they did. And I think it's incumbent upon us to just continue to sort of get the message out there that in an appropriately selected patient, actually we have outcomes, even in the destination therapy group, that are equivalent to transplant out to five years. And no one would ever deny the patient an opportunity at a transplant. So I think we just have to keep getting that message out there that if a patient is sent very late, they're going to struggle. If you get them three months sooner or six months sooner, the answer is they will do just as well as a transplant patient. 
That's impressive. So, Dr. Slaughter, I know that in addition to your work on VADs, you have interest in activities in terms of tissue engineering and cell-based therapy for cardiac applications. Can you give us a brief overview of that? You're absolutely right. And part of this idea sort of developing these heart pumps is it really has opened the door to several other sort of potential therapy treatments for patients. And one would be is myocardial recovery. So historically, when we put VADs in people, sort of sporadically and here and there, there would be a patient where their heart function would return to normal and we could take the VAD out. And they did very well after that. And so what we learned that was by resting the heart, there were a lot of positive things that happened. You got a reduction in left ventricular and diastolic diameter. The mitral insufficiency then went away with the septum in the midline, PA pressures coming down, the right ventricular function improved. And similarly, on a sort of a neurohormonal and molecular level, there was a reduction in TNF-alpha, plasma norepinephrine, and these patients had improvement in calcium metabolism at sarcoplasmic reticulum level. So the idea is the VAD itself did a lot of really positive things. But the question then became is still a lot of these patients had a lot of scar, even if they were non-ischemic cardiomyopathies due to the ventricular hypertrophy and then dilatation. So the issue became is with all the positive things that the VAD were doing, why couldn't we get a few more people to, quote, recover so they then could have their VAD removed? And not only their VAD removed, but wouldn't need to go on to transplant. And so one of the exciting areas is in cell-based therapies and or regenerative medicine. The idea being is that you could put a VAD in, get all those positive results, and then somehow use cell therapy or some form of cell therapy to generate additional myocytes such that we'll see more people recover. And this is taking shape in many forms. There are several people working with cells and cell injection, whether they're mesenchymal cells or uh, cardiac-derived progenitor cells. There's other groups interested in taking these cells and applying them to a biologic patch so that you could sort of cover or treat a larger area of the heart. And then another approach would actually be is just to change the extracellular matrix. And the idea being is if you could sort of change the scar, then the heart could even auto-populate with progenitor cells. So it really has opened the door to some fascinating basic science, lots of collaboration between bioengineering, people interested in biohybrid organs, and how these VADs can be used to actually facilitate myocardial recovery, growing new heart muscle, stimulating new heart muscle to be formed, which would be a fantastic option, particularly for a young person who might be facing the need of a transplant. I think it's important that everybody work together for the benefit of the patients. Absolutely correct. That's ultimately what it's all about. So, Dr. Slaughter, thank you for joining us and sharing with us your pioneering research and your clinical activities. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Until we meet again, I encourage our listeners to mail us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com, and thank you for listening.